Mike doing the announcements live from Space Station. <laughs> Thank you for the waters. Thank you. Uh, the reason why the Mike did video announcements instead of in person is because we are this Sunday uh, beginning to do communion at the end of every, every sermon. And so we haven't done that before. And so we thought, like, what are some of the ways that we need to make sure that we're tighter on the schedule so that we fit in some of the dynamics of what we do on a Sunday morning? We, we do Q&A. We want room to pray for people. We want room to sing at the end. So one of the things we thought was, at times, announcements can take a long time especially if we crack a joke and y'all laugh and we get in the zone and all of a sudden, you know, it's live at, you know, at Apollo, you know, especially if it's me. If I crack a joke, it's, that's it. It's, we gone. So we just thought, you know what, let's, let's try some new things. So for the foreseeable future, there may be days, some Sundays where we do announcements a lot like we always do, but they're going to be t- most times we're going to do them via that way because then we're constricted and if we say something too long, we can just edit that announcement out, cut that out. We can cut you right off in the middle of. So if, you, if I'm talking too much, I'm like, yeah, so, and nice was over, just like that. So that's why Mike is doing the announcements. So have no fear, never fear. I know change, people hate change unless it's quarters, dimes, and nickels. So, and even then, some hate change. How many people pick up pennies and dimes and nickels when you see them on the floor? How many people pick up pennies? Pick up pennies. Raise your hand just out of curiosity, just if you pick up pennies. Okay. How many people pick up dollars? Okay. Just out of curiosity. There was a few people like, well, I mean, I, huh? What planet are you from? All right, so that's why. So please, if you, please remember the, the explanation because people will be like afterwards, hey, so why do we do announcements on the screen again? It's just like, you know what? Go be blessed, be filled. The Lord has has not revealed it to you yet, but it will come. <laughs> so we will be doing, so we're going to hopefully get through this message, have time for Q&A, have a song for worship, and then we're going to take um, communion at the end. Just want to remind you again, as I did, I think, last week or even the week before, this is not the communion where we, you know, we have John Pagans and his team with the nice sliced bread and where they had a raisin, cut it real nice, and you get this fluffy piece of bread and so it's a wafer uh, and a cup of juice. If you have big hands, fat hands like mine, take your time peeling it back because you'll get juice all on your shirt. And then you'll have to lick communion. So just peel it back. Take your time. There's no rush. We'll do that and get it ready. We're going to hand it out like we normally do. And this is going to be every week now. The reason why we're doing this every week, there's real no real rhyme or reason. Uh, the Lord said to we do this in memory of him. Communion, that's what he said. He didn't say how often to do it, when to do it. Some people could do it once a year. You could do it. We did it monthly. One of the reasons why we want to do it every week is so that the, the communion is really supposed to, supposed to always remind us of the sacrifice of Christ, always. And there will be times where hopefully, hopefully, in the preaching of the word, that reminder is present. But there are times where the scriptures, sometimes it's, it's a different thing. We might be talking about something different. But we, we never want to forget that the reason why we're even gathered together, particularly those of us who believe in Jesus, the reason why we're here is because of the sacrifice. We're, our gathering together, in a sense, is remembering what Jesus did and celebrating it. So adding communion, even though it will become normal, just like everything that's every. It's still a part of helping us as we're leaving to remember the sacrifice that Christ paid for our sins. So that's the reason why we want to do it uh, uh, weekly, beginning with this Sunday. All right. Having said that, open your Bibles or Bible apps after you put your cell phones and stuff on vibrate to Romans 1. We are doing... One verse today. I was supposed to do it last week, and time got away. We're doing Romans 1.17 today, but I'm going to read 1.16 for context. As I stated last week, many people believe that this is the theme verse of the book of Romans, and particularly the person who wrote the book of Romans, his name is Paul. 
Many people believe that this is actually the theme verse of Paul's life. So let me read this and explain one of the challenges with this verse. Reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And it says this, beginning in 16, 116 Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Today we're going to focus on verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I don't know if you would know this. There are a few people in the room who would be aware of this. This verse, 117, Romans 117, is one of the most debated verses in the Bible. It's one of the most. And people have gone back and forth over what does this verse mean. This is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, and people have different understandings of what this verse means. And there are different people who come from different sides. And the point is, this verse, many people think, if you get this verse wrong, you will misinterpret the rest of the book of Romans. So people have thought that understanding this verse in particular will help you understand the force and the thrust of the whole book theologically. So if you mess this up, you may mess up, this is how people think, you may mess up the understanding, the correct understanding for the rest of the book of Romans, the other 15 chapters. That's a lot of pressure. Have no fear. I have solved the puzzle. <laughs> solved the puzzle. I'd like to solve the puzzle. I'm kidding. I personally, me, I don't sometimes understand what the fuss is about. I think I'm grateful that understanding correctly what the passage is saying is critical. But I think how people come at this and what they argue over, to me, is a bit ridiculous. It's a bit ridiculous. The phrase in question is, for in the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That's the phrase in question. So there's a couple words in the Greek. You know, I don't do the whole tell you about the Greek because most people in here don't understand Greek. But there are a couple words, apocalyptitai, and then dikaiosune, which is righteousness, deu, which is of God, God. So it's like, what does that mean with this, these words together? And you look at these in the Greek and you figure out what does this mean? And okay, is this what kind of case is this? Is this present tense? Is this? So that's the way you kind of think through these things. And so there are different ways to understand what does the righteousness of God mean in this particular verse. If I get this wrong, we're doomed for the book of Romans. We're done. I'm stepping down. I will do video preaching from then on, from here on up. If I get this wrong, everything is wrong. My life has no meaning. I think it's foolish. Having said that, let's zoom in to this particular phrase. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning on this portion of verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. All right, we're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning. All right, here we go. A couple different ways people process this. So in the red corner, in the red corner, weighing in it, I don't know how much Martin Luther weighed. In the red corner... Here's the understanding of what this person means. Martin Luther, many of us are familiar with the Reformation. He is the one who posted his sort of 95 thesis on the Catholic Church's door, and that led to what is called the Reformation 500 years ago on October 31st. 
His perspective is the righteousness of God in this passage, in this context, means a believer's status before God. That's what it means. It means a believer's status before God. What we would formally know as justification. This is what he believes that this passage means. It's, it's a, what you call a forensic term that essentially says this. Even though you are, we are sinners and have sinned against the Lord and are unrighteous, because our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared legally by God, even though we are sinful, we are, we are declared by God as being sinless. God sees us as if we haven't sinned. We're, we're justified, okay? There's another part to this. It's called what's called imputed righteousness. Imputed just means credited to you. So there is Jesus's righteousness is credited to us as if we had been faithful. That's how God sees us. So that's, that's sort of a very well-known and very respected respected interpretation of this passage. Your standing before God as you are righteous, even though you're sinful, and that is important. Because if you are not righteous before God, then you cannot escape the righteous wrath of God. So there's a reality. There's a, you have to be righteous before God. And if, if it's clear that our works which we get into in Romans 3, our works do not make us righteous before God, then we can only be not guilty before God based on someone else's righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. So that's sort of the, not sort of, that's that's it. So what we would normally call justification is I am legally declared not guilty from God's perspective, even though I am guilty from an actual perspective. That is a wonderful gift from God. There's scriptural support for this throughout all of scripture, a lot. We'll get to this in Romans chapter three, but one of the verses in Romans three, it says this, Paul is making this statement. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Similar language attested by the law and the prophets. So he's talking about those in the Old Testament. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And since there is no distinction. So you see, the righteousness of God is through faith. So you are righteous from God's perspective through your faith in Jesus Christ. He also says something similar in Galatians, another book to a, to a church, In Galatians, he says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So what he's saying is it's no longer just I now, Christ is in me and I live No longer for myself, but I live to glorify Jesus Christ. And then he says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, if God sees you as righteous, comes through the law, which is just obeying the Ten Commandments. Let's just use, for now, whenever you hear law, just think Ten Commandments. That's that's a good way to summarize them. If righteousness from God comes through the law, the Ten Commandments, then Christ died for nothing. So what he's saying is, if God can see people as righteous for obeying the Ten Commandments, then what did Christ have to come for? That's the whole point. Like, Christ came because no one has done it to God's standard. So this idea of my righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ is throughout the New Testament. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. In verse 8 9, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, from obeying the Ten Commandments, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God, the righteousness from God based on faith. So you see, this is an important reality. This is a very true reality for those who are believers. This is very true and it's very real. The question is, is that what he means in Romans 1.17? Is that what he means? This is a true statement. This is one of those things that we are grateful for. We're grateful for the fact that God would say that we're not guilty. And honestly, whether you think about this doctrine or not, this justification, whether you think about it functionally or not, it's the main reason why you and I are comfortable dying, knowing that we're sinful, because we have confidence that God is going to forgive us, not because we haven't sinned. Like, you know what? I bet you, I, I can't prove this, obviously, I'm not the Lord. But I don't know if it's possible for everyone in here before they die to ask for forgiveness of everything they've done. You might have been in an accident. You might, have, you might get into an accident after sinning against the Lord, and just like that, boom, you are gone. The condition of your forgiveness is not primarily in your asking for it, but in Christ having forgiven you for it and giving you a righteousness of his own. So when you stand before God, guilty as charged, you will hear, not guilty. Not guilty. This is insane. This is a crazy truth. My favorite verse, one of the first verse that introduced me to this justification or what's called more forensic justification or this, this imputed righteousness, this declaration of not guilty was, this was the first verse that I came across that I remember memorizing because I was like, wow, it was the first time I began to understand this truth because at first it was hard for me to get my mind around it. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21, and Paul says, he made the one who did not know sin, so the Father made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God the Father made Jesus, who never sinned, to become sin as if he did sin for us so that we might become righteous, even though we're unrighteous, before God. This is a crazy reality. Now, if you're new to this, this might be hard to grasp. This is, we're going to get theological today in case you haven't figured out. So if you're a guest and Thank you for coming. If any of this is over your head, I, I get it. I understand. Let me give you an analogy that may help the situation. How many of you know who uh, Ian Clark is? NBA Hall of Fame, Ian Clark. Okay. A couple of people raising their hand. They think they know who he is. All right. This poor dude. I guarantee nobody's wearing Ian Clark jerseys. I can tell you that right now. If you got an Ian Clark jersey on, somebody probably thinks it's your last name on a team's jersey. Ian Clark has done something that some NBA legends have never been able to do. There are people in the history of the NBA who haven't accomplished what Ian Clark accomplished. Ian Clark was at the end of the bench on the Golden State Warriors when they won the NBA championship last year. He was on the team the year before, part of it, 
that team that had the greatest record in NBA history, regular season at 73-9. and Okay, Ian Clark, many people don't know him, because when you think of the Golden State Warriors, you think of Steph Curry. Steph Curry. That's the dude. I know Kevin Durant is there, too. But when you think of the Golden State Warriors, you think Steph Curry. When you watch, when you hear the Golden State Warriors are coming to play the Wizards and you want to get tickets, you're not like, man, I can't wait to see Ian Clark play. That's not how you think, okay? In his career, 240 games, Ian Clark averaged 4.7 points a game. 1.2 rebounds and one assist. I can do that. In the NBA. And don't judge me. It, uh, through, through him, I can do all things in Christ. Who, I don't know what y'all are talking about. That passage didn't, that meant everything. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Philippians 4, 3, memorize that. I, I can do this. I can have these stats. Ian Clark, Ian Clark is on the team that won the national, the world champions. He got a ring like Steph Curry and all the other players. When they put this team into the Hall of Fame and the picture, he will be forever in that picture. You cannot go there and cut him out of that picture. He is on that team even though he didn't contribute anything. I think he played a total of 20 minutes in the playoffs. Total. He didn't contribute anything to them winning this this ring, this championship. They didn't do anything. He sat there and watched, and he cheered them on. He was probably mad at times, like, man, I wish I could play. <laughs> if you're competitive, when you get, listen, you don't get to the NBA to sit there and ride the bench. You know, you think, like, I'm trying to play. And then you get there, you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm, just, hey, I'm just glad to be here. I'm just getting this money. And... <laughs> You know, it, you just, some people just be glad to get there. You, you on a team. Well, this team went head-to-head -head with the Cleveland Cavaliers and won the NBA championship. He has a ring that's huge. That is the one thing that most NBA players want in their lives. Now, when you think about all the NBA legends in history that never won a championship ring, and this dude won a ring only because he was on this team. He didn't contribute anything, okay? So what does this have to do with the doctrine of justification? I know you're thinking that. Well, here's how. When God sees you and I, even though we couldn't contribute anything good to our salvation, he sees us as on the team. We're on the team. Jesus is our Steph Curry. You know what I'm saying. I'm, don't, don't call me a heretic afterwards. I'm not. Scripture uses anthropomorphisms where it describes God in ways in human terms. Jesus is our Steph Curry. But Jesus, I, it, would be, I, I, it would be interesting to see if Jesus was perfect. Would he have missed a shot? Would he? That's a different, con there are probably some theologians debating over that right now as we speak. When God sees you and I, he doesn't see the person who wasn't able to contribute to this and who had some turnovers or who wasn't the best player on the team. He sees us as on the team because we believe in Jesus Christ. So even though you and I could not contribute in any way to pleasing God apart from Jesus, when we stand before him, we will get the same ring because we're on the team. That's how God sees us because we believe in Jesus. We're on the team. Now, here's one thing Ian Clark did do, though. He did have to go to practice. He did have to learn the offense. He had to learn how to play defense. So you and I, we still have to learn how to obey God. We still have to learn how to honor him, how to resist 
temptation. We still have to fight some of the own desires that we have that come from within us. We have to fight people's sin against us. We have to do all of that. But we don't do it because we can, we're not good enough to win the championship. Without Steph Curry, they wasn't going to win. Without Jesus, there's no winning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, despite the struggles you have, when you stand before God, he will see you as, okay, he's on the team. He's on the team. You are justified. You have Christ's righteousness. He did it. You benefit. You're on the team. That's what this is about. Now, is that, that view of righteousness of God, is that what is meant in Romans 1, 17? Before we get there, have you ever wondered why we need a righteousness of God? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered, I mean, you know, we... We confine ourselves to the way things are because it's how God revealed it, right? But God, being all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, could have decided, if he wanted to, could have decided that we didn't necessarily need Christ's righteousness to be forgiven and declared not guilty. Like, he just, like, we actually get a righteousness. Like, it's not, it's not disconnected. Like, you have to get, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not like, well, you just, you're not declared legally righteous from God. No, no, no. God sees you as being on the team, even though you haven't been faithful all the time. So why do we need that? Why do we need that legal declaration? Why isn't someone who's not a Christian with no faith in God who does amazing stuff, People, we know people that work at shelters and feed the homeless and they do all this stuff. I've recently heard about a, a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, Bill Gates, giving tons of money to school systems. As far as I know, he doesn't believe in Jesus. That's amazing. There are people who are doing all these great things, humanly speaking, that don't believe in Jesus. So when God sees them, when they die, despite that they did all this good stuff, they're not on the team. You're not on the team. Now, for us, we might think like, man, is that fair? Well, God sent his son to die brutally, which is probably not fair. And by that, I'm being facetious. It's not fair that Christ, who was sinless, gets judged for our sin, brutally murdered so that we could be forgiven. To me, the cross changes everything. All the that's not fair to me goes out the window when you think Christ died. If, if, if something is not fair about Christianity, it's not doesn't seem right. I get it because this stuff is just like, man, that seems wild to me. But Christ died on the cross. That's something totally different. Out of all the ways that God could have chosen salvation to happen, he decided, I'm going to pour out my wrath on my son. This son I love. I'm going to pour my wrath out on him. So people do all these good works, but they don't have the righteousness of God. What's, so why isn't the works good enough? What happened? What does God see then? Why do we need a righteousness from Christ? Why does God need to say, I'm declaring you righteous? Let's get theological this morning. Some things we must understand to answer this question, and I think to really appreciate sort of this reality. Many of us know these things. Some of us are to be a refresher. Some of us are to be new. We have to go back to the beginning. I think everything, most of the answers are in Genesis 1 through 3. I think a ton of answers are in Genesis 1 through 3. Why do we need an imputed righteousness from God? Let me give you an answer. I think comes out of these 
these chapters of Scripture. We have to understand this, that when God made Adam and Eve, God was creating humanity. He wasn't just creating Adam and Eve. He was creating mankind. So they were just the first two people that represented humanity. So that's what it is. So when you look at this, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, this is the sixth day of creation. God has made all this stuff, all these things, animals, birds, sky, water, night, all this stuff. And then he says on the sixth day, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So you see, there's no way that two people can rule all of that. God is creating humanity, but he starts with Adam and Eve. So from the beginning, Adam and Eve represent all humanity. They're just the first two created. So whatever they do, represents all humanity. Verse 27 of, of Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply the earth, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So God gives these two responsibility to make more human beings and multiply on the earth and have authority over it. I'm creating this world for you. You're going to be like me in this world. You're different than these animals. You're going to be like me. You too are the beginning of what will be mankind, humanity, as we know it. Then he says this. So he makes Adam first. And right before he makes Eve, he says this to Adam in the garden in Genesis 2. He says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man. He said, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So you can have all these trees. Just don't eat this one. If you eat from this one, you're going to die. That was the only prohibition that we're aware of that God gave him. He makes Eve Adam and Eve are getting to know each other. Genesis 3 shows up, and it says this. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, this is very important. So good and evil. So he says, no, no. If you bite the fruit, you will be like God, deciding what's good and what's evil. All right. Now, remember, God told Adam which is basically him telling all humanity, don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Why? Scripture doesn't say, but I would say because God wanted to define what good and evil was for them, and they submit to what he said. Just like when I tell my kids, don't, don't do this, don't ask me why. I mean, there are certain things that they say, well, why not? I say, okay, I get that. But if I say, hey, don't run it, you know, if I'm like, hey, don't do this, don't go across the street and do that, why? Huh? You know how you just be like, because I said so, son. Like, you're not trying to be rude, but you're like, why are you asking me why a lot? So it doesn't say why, but it's, I think God was like, look, I define good and evil. I determine that for you. You listen to what I say. Cool. You created me. You got it. I'm their dad. You got it. If one of you tell my kids something and I tell them you don't got to listen to that, I bet you they'll listen to me. Why? Because they're my kids. I created them. They're mine. Be careful how you talk to my kids. No, I'm just playing, sort of. All right, so, so the devil, the serpent says, hey, if you eat from this, you'll be like God deciding good and evil. Well, what is good and evil? Morality. Morality. And essentially, what is righteousness? It is a summation of morality. Morality, excuse me, good and evil. 
To be righteous is to be perfectly moral, perfectly good and evil. That's it. So if the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, whoever eats it will decide good and evil, then that person will then decide in their own righteousness what good and evil is. And they did it. They bite the fruit. Verse 6 says this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was dishonorable for obtaining wisdom, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She took some of his fruit and ate it. She also gave the sum to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of them were both open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So now, because they're the first two humans, remember, all humanity begins with them. Once they bite the fruit, every person from then on is now going to think that we can decide good and evil on our own apart from God. We all inherited that. On one level, it was imputed to us that we now, and we're going to do it. It's it's inevitable. They were the first two, but it was like any of us. They represented all humanity. Humanity failed to obey God. And so everyone born of that from then decides good and evil on our own. And that's exactly what sin is. Sin is just, this is a good thing to do, even though God says it's not, and I'm going to do it. That's all sin is, is I'm deciding that this is good to do, and and God says it's not, and I disagree with him. So I'm going to lie because I'm afraid of what people will think. Or I'm going to explode in anger because how dare they, whatever it is. Whatever you decide to do in that moment, you are deciding that that's a good thing to do, despite the fact that God says it's not. You just disagree with him. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. But we've inherited a righteousness now in ourselves that determines morality. And so the history of the world Mankind speaking now is plagued with this reality. Well, here's the problem. The slightest deviation from God is satanic. From God's perspective, there isn't a neutral ground. It's either 100 me or 100 Satan. There is none. There's no gray area. Like, you know how, well, it's a little white lie. It's like, no, there's either you, it's either 100 morality from God or the devil. There's no gray area to God. One of the proofs of this, you see this later in the scriptures where in Mark 8, listen to what happens. So this is Jesus. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man, another name refers to Jesus, to suffer many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter, one of the most beloved apostles, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, he wasn't saying Satan got into Peter. He's saying your your thinking is satanic. The slightest deviation from God's moral law is satanic. All Peter did was just say, my Lord, you're not going to die. He thought he was saying something good. Like, I love you, bro. I don't want to see you die. I love you, man. And God said, this is satanic. The slightest deviation is satanic righteousness, if you will. So guess what all humanity inherited? A satanic righteousness. So God can no longer look at human beings and just see two people who have sex outside of what he said, but they just love each other. God can't look at people who just, uh, who just do good works and do this because no matter what you do, you have a satanic righteousness that rivals God's. And the only way you cannot have that is for God to change that righteousness. That's the only way. Otherwise, all the stuff you do, even though it looks good, it doesn't measure up. 
It doesn't measure up. We've all inherited that. Now, if time permitted, I could prove more by the specifics of that we've inherited this satanic self-righteousness. But that's who people are. That's who people are. Underneath it all. Underneath the veneer, the flesh, the skin, the soul. Is I decide good and evil on my own. Decide it on my own. So God... God determines that I need to cover them. The only righteousness that can cover them is Jesus's. So it's not just about works. It's about the quality of work. Perfection. And the only one who could be perfect is Jesus. So part of the package of being a Christian is that God now, it's not just you're going to do different works. We've talked about this. There are people who are nicer than Christians, that are more diligent than Christians, that have better marriages than Christians, that are more faithful to pray. We talked about this. Muslims pray five times a day. Other religions go out and will evangelize their faith more than believers do. But they don't believe in Jesus. So they're not on the team. That's still a definition of good and evil that rivals God's. The only way our obedience is accepted is if it's covered by a righteousness. And so God, it can't just be, hey, you believe, cool, and just do works. They still don't measure up. Ironically, in Genesis 3.21, it says this, after God declares that he's going to bring about punishment and each, the Satan, Eve, and Adam each get sort of their own different punishments, you think like, man, this is going to be, they're, they're in serious trouble. Then you see this in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. He clothed them. That's a crazy verse. Because they had already made fig leaves for themselves, so they could do that. But God decides to take animal skins and cover their shame. It is symbolic, I believe, of the way that his righteousness covers ours. They could have made their own clothes, but God makes clothes for them. He covers them. Jesus' righteousness covers us. So is that what is meant by the righteousness of God in 117. That's the red corner. Here's the blue corner. It means God's saving power over all creation. So this is about God transforming us, effective at changing us. This isn't about your individual standing before God, but about God's power to change us over time. So that's what people believe. There are some who believe that this is the side that he's talking about in this passage, and there is scriptural support for that. I mean, even in the context here, there's scriptural support for that. But one of the strongest supports of this view is the Old Testament. The Old Testament connects God's righteousness and his saving power together a lot. Not legally declaring someone guilty, but saving them and changing them. So you see stuff like Psalm 98. Two, it says, you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me, rescue me, incline me to your ear and save me. You get passages like, um, like, like Psalm 71, 1 and 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So there's salvation and righteousness. So people believe, no, this is about God saving people and changing them. You get stuff like Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness, God speaking. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. So there are people who believe and there's also New Testament precedent for the righteousness of God also changing people. Now, if we get this wrong, we mess up the book of Romans. So what is it? 
I have no clue. No, I'm kidding. And you know I'm kidding. Because I'm going to say something even if I'm wrong. This is what I really believe. I don't think Paul ever meant to pit these two against each other at all. I don't think he ever meant to pit these two against each other. The righteousness of God in this passage, I believe, is all-encompassing. I don't think Paul meant to pit them against each other at all. Let me explain why. Now, I told you at the beginning that in the Greek, people would look at the word apocalyptitai and dikaiosune theu, and that's the primary, and, what, and that's kind of it, and I agree. That's where you start. What are the, and it's Greek stuff. I'm not going to, that's where you start. That's where you get. But I think that the concern is this. The passage says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The question that I think we have to answer is, what is the it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what's the it that it's referring to? What's the it? See, I don't think the phrase is primarily just what does the righteousness of God means. It's what is the it that the righteousness of God is being, is, is kind of modifying. Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. So the question then becomes, well, then what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because that's the it that the power of God and that the righteousness of God is modifying in this passage. That's the it it's looking back to. So what is the gospel? Well, depending on your understanding of the gospel, I think will determine what the righteousness of God means in this passage to you. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that of first importance is Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, I, I tell you what I've heard was of first importance. So that's the central and most important theme of the gospel, but it's not the only part of the gospel. It's not. It's not the only part of the gospel. I believe that the righteousness of God here is all-encompassing, and I think it's speaking about God's moral character, his imputed righteousness, and his transformative aspect. Let me explain this. God's moral character is seen in the gospel because it punishes Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is punished, not because God is mean, but because God is holy and righteous and he has to punish sin. So we can't, sometimes we beautify the cross like Jesus died on the cross. Well, he died for a reason. He died receiving the wrath of God. That is an aspect of God cannot just forgive people without punishing sin. So the only way to be forgiven is to have your sin punished. So your sin is punished by Jesus Christ. That reveals God's moral character, his hatred, his wrath towards sin. That's a huge component of the gospel. That's a huge component. The power of God, as we talked about last week as we went through that, that's part of God's moral character. We see that. You cannot remove that. I mean, if you want to point, the gospel is essentially who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how we get to live. That's what the good news is. All of those things are a part of it. The good news, who is Jesus? The Son of God, the Messiah, the unknown God. All these different things, depending on who you are, Jew or Greek. What did he do? He lived perfectly, was crucified as if he didn't, and rose from the dead. So how do we get to live? That's part of the good news. You can't disassociate the fact that we get to live a certain way and are rewarded in heaven from the good news. If the good news is only Christ died on the cross for your sin, then you got just a small portion of it. Then what's the point of all the other, all the whole, the rest of the letters telling us how we ought to live? If the good news is only that Jesus died on the cross, good, thank you. Let me keep doing what I'm doing. I know believe, unbelievers who believe that. I know unbelievers who would be like, man, I want to thank God for everything. Without him, nothing is possible. When they receive an award, and then you go online and see him at the after party, like, oh, 
around doing whatever. Their lifestyles don't promote their lips. Anyone can thank God for what he's done. So the good news is all encompassing. So if you're going to talk about the gospel, you have to mention God's moral character and punishing Jesus Christ. That's a part of it. He's not ashamed of it. And it's the power of God for salvation, verse 16, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So now that comes down to individuals. Comes down to individuals. So if you look at verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We know that he's talking about human faith because the end of verse 17 says the righteous will live by faith. He's not talking about angels. He's talking about human beings. Well, there's God's imputed aspect because you can't live righteous or be seen as righteous from God unless he gives you that. So there's the imputed aspect. And then there's, so that's the, that's the faith from faith. And then the transformative, the righteous will live by faith. It's transformative. I don't think Paul meant to pit these two against each other at all. I think he was making a statement about the gospel and using the righteousness of God as an all-encompassing statement to explain it. I don't think it was about, well, it was just effective, transformative, or imputed. I don't think so. And he hits both of those throughout the rest of Romans. I think it's all-encompassing. I think it's all-encompassing. The emphasis in verse 17 moves from the righteousness of God and is revealed from faith to faith. Many people go back and forth as to what that means. Most people settle on that it means from beginning to end. Faith from the beginning, faith from the end. I think it's faith from God for faith in God. So we get faith from God to have faith in God. That's what he gives us. That's an amazing gift. I mean, there's no analogy for it, but it would be like, son, here you go. Happy birthday. Here's $20. Go buy me something. <laughs> it's just like, that's crazy. It's like we get faith from God to have faith in God. Most people think it means from beginning to end. In context, I think that's, good. that's a good, I think in context, I think it means more from the faith of the Jews to the faith of the Greeks. It's all-encompassing faith. In context, I think it's talking about that. Because the emphasis is on mankind living faithful. Who were mankind? Jews and Greeks. It's just, it doesn't mean just Jews. It's like there are two kinds of people in the world. It's just, that's what it means, Jews and Greeks. It's just, it, that, that statement encompasses the whole world. So from faith to faith in context, I think it's just saying from the faith of the Jews to the faith of the Gentiles, from beginning to end, that's what it means. His righteousness is revealed. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's just take it from Habakkuk 3, and it adds a nice touch to the end of the verse. Is that those who have received righteousness from God will by faith live righteously for God. It's just that. This is why, even though we sin against the Lord and we struggle, we'll still read the Bible and we'll still pray and we'll do stuff that counters how we feel because we feel hypocritical. We feel like we can't come to church. We feel like we can't pray. We feel like we can't read. We All this stuff we got to battle with. And the reason why we actually still do it and we still pray and we still confess to others our challenges, why we do all these things is not because you and I would just do them. You and I would rather hide and have no one know them and present ourselves as thinking we got everything figured out. But the reason why we don't do that, I mean, some of us do, but the reason why we are willing to say, man, I failed, I, I need help, I need this, I'm, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read, I'm going to do these things, is because the righteousness of God in you, the faith from God has given you faith in God. So even though we fail God, his righteousness holds on to us, his spirit in us holds on to us, and we still fight to believe the truth. I think the Bible calls that persevere. We persevere. Christians are flawed folks. 
but we're on the team. We're on the team. The wildest thing to me, one of them, is that when we stand before God, he's going to give us the championship ring, even though all we did was learn the drills and practice. Maybe we got in the game a little bit. But we're going to be rewarded with eternal security, with a a dwelling place and actual rewards from God that we wouldn't have done unless he gave us faith to do it. The righteousness of God is all-encompassing in this passage. There will be passages where it's specifically talking about the transformative and a lot of the imputed, the legal declaration, you're not guilty, and that's going to be huge. When we get to Romans 3, we're going to see that all over the place. Even though our faith is not sinless, it's not pointless. And that's huge from God. You live righteously or trying to because you've received righteousness from God. And even though we don't feel it, you know, who wakes up like, I feel like a Christian today? (laughs) You know, you wake up, you're tired, you don't feel well, you got stuff you got to do, depending on your situation. If you got little kids, you're like, man, I wish you were an adult. I wish you could change your own diaper. You know, whatever it is. You got all this stuff going on. You got, you got to get to work, and it's like, man, you know, I need my cup of coffee. You got to get that coffee. You'll swing by Starbucks, but forgot to pray, right? Forgot to read, right? Forgot to do that, but you got that cup of Chichino or whatever that is. <laughs> I don't drink at Starbucks, so I don't know what the drinks are, so I'm sorry. I get water and hot chocolate, but the Puda Pacino, whatever that stuff is, People will have a tall, which the tall is, is the grunt. The one is tall one, whatever one that is. People will show up with that, but we'll forget to pray, right? We'll forget to do those things, right? But you're on the team. You're on the team. That's an added bonus to believe in God. So I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, And also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I love that statement because I don't feel righteous. How many people feel righteous often? Exactly. But do you know in this moment, this very moment, this very moment, from God's perspective, you are righteous. Do you know that? This very moment, despite the fact that you ain't read, that you're struggling, that you're struggling with bitterness, anxiety, resentment, anger, lust, if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, this very moment, you are righteous from God's perspective. So live by faith. We have a few minutes just for a few questions. Questions? Please don't preface it by this is not a question. Yank the mic in the hell if they do that. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards because we got to do communion in a minute. Yes, ma'am. Um, I understand what you've said, but I was wondering, uh, you said this verse was so important to people. What, what is the argument about? I think the argument is if it's not, in, if it's the, 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 way you, the way you process the rest of the book. I, well, let me say this. I don't know what the argument is about because I, I do, but I don't think it's as important as people have made it. I, it is, but it's not. I think people have fought over things. Like, like for, for, for Martin Luther, he's coming from Catholicism, right? So righteousness and justification, that's his thing. That's what, that's what freed him from the Catholic Church in real life. So for him, this is a big deal. And I think people have taken up the, what he felt, but it's not a big deal to us in our day in the same way. So on one level, I think it was a big deal when he said it and he needed to say that. Cool. Yet many years later, people began to see it as something different. So I think the argument is if it's only one way, which is really odd because you context is how you understand everything. Right. If I say it's raining cat and dogs, you're like, oh, my gosh, call Peter. That's not what you would do. Right. You would understand in context that that's just a statement. You know, you're not looking outside. Pew, pew, you know, that's not what you're expecting to see. So everything is in context, including the scripture. So I'm surprised that 
pressure was put on this understanding, but because it's a theme verse and because of that, so if it's just imputed righteousness, then, then there's no, there is no hope for change because you're just legally declared guilt, not guilty. It doesn't mean you're, you can, do you have any power to live that way? Okay, so that's one. But if it is this way, then, you're, then it's not about a personal legal standing before God. It's just about power to live. And it's like, nah, why does it have to be like, like, we're talking about God here. It really has to be one or the other. Like, I think God in heaven is going to be like, wow, these people are wild. They just go back and forth. Well, it's this or that. It's this or that. Uh, no, we hold a lot of things in tension. I believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. I don't think it's this or that. We hold a lot in tension. And I think people sometimes have to be dogmatic like this or that. And I just don't think this particular passage, this one, only means one or the other. I think it's all encompassing. Yep, anyone else? Good, so either you're confused or you're still processing. Good. All right, let's come on up, Juan. You can get to me afterwards if you have questions. You didn't want to ask them in front of you because you thought it might be weird. 